1: Oh, uh-huh.
2: Hello, everyone, and welcome to Audio Judo, your friendly neighborhood podcast.
0: I'm Matthew. And I'm friendly Kyle. Are you friendly? I'm sometimes friendly, yes. Okay, good.
2: Hey, we are proud members of the Pantheon Podcast Network, the premier location for all of your podcast needs. Uh, If you are interested in deep dives on music, thought-provoking discussions, and some awesome interviews, look no further than the OG original podcast on the network, Rock and Roll Archaeology. Oh, Yeah hosted by Christian Swain. Uh, It's fantastic stuff. Uh, We now have two podcasts on that network. We're about halfway into the series Audio Judo Does Jazz, hosted by our show consultant, Chris. Uh, And I feel like Chris is just starting to warm up now, just starting to hit his stride, so to speak. So we're excited about that. You can check that out at Pantheon, or you can find it at our website at audiojudo.com forward slash ajdj as well as anywhere else, podcasts Our podcast.
0: Yes, you can. And Matthew, I love it when you pick these no-name bands and an album nobody's ever heard of before. Kyle? To do a whole episode about. It's my turn. Oh, I'm sorry.
2: Normally, Kyle is is the one to choose the albums that are so big, that have countless books, yep. documentaries, mm-hmm. columns of material I written try about my them. Best. For example, he has chosen four of the top 100 albums of all time, according to Rolling Stone. The Beach Boys' Pet Sounds, mm-hmm. Prince's Purple Rain, mm-hmm. Elton John's Goodbye Yellow Brick Road. That is correct. And Stevie Wonder's Talking Book. Oh, wonderful. Well, now I'm taking my shot. <laughs> this is my punishment. Uh, this week we are talking about U2's 1987 release, The Joshua Tree.
0: Once again, I'm sorry. I've never heard of this band before. Who is Who is this? I don't know. They, I think they're... Scottish or something. I'm okay. not sure. I, I had to look them up. I've never heard of them before.
2: It's so. Named after some plane. One of the highest selling and critically acclaimed albums of all time has uh, been most recently listed as high as number twenty seven on mm-hmm. the aforementioned top one hundred albums of all time.
0: Fifty two million certified units in the U.S. Is that yeah. it? Yeah, twenty second highest selling artist in the U.S. Somewhere between one hundred and fifty and one hundred and seventy million units sold worldwide. That's
2: you too. That is just you two. Just you too. Just you too. Yes. So this album is a, a, has won a treasure trove of awards. It has. Sale figu- sales figures that we'll get to. Uh, has been selected for preservation by the Library of Congress, having been deemed, quote, culturally, historically, or aesthetically significant. Uh, and that's not bad for four young men from Dublin. Right. Who may have made one of the most American-sounding records <laughs> of that entire period. I would –
0: Strongly agree with that.
2: So uh, a little bit about uh, U2. They were formed in 1976 in Dublin, Ireland. And that came as a shock to me that it was 76. Yeah, that feels very old. I would have thought 80, 81 at the most, but not 76. Um, They formed when 14-year-old – that's right. 14-year-old Larry (laughs) Mullen Jr. put a note on the wall at school looking for musicians to form a band. Six people responded. Uh, They met at his house later that week. Amongst the attendees were Ivan McCormick and Peter Martin, Dick Evans and his younger brother David, Paul Hewson and Adam Clayton. Paul Hewson would eventually change his name to Bono. (laughs) And David Evans would change his name to
0: The Edge. And I totally want to know, do you think that one of those was in response to the other? I like, changed my name. You- did, did Bono show up one day? He's like, from now on, I want you to call me Bono. And then he, <laughs> and and, yeah. David was like, fuck you. You're going to call me the edge from now on.
2: He probably walked <laughs> away for a while and stewed about it. Mm, uh, <laughs> son of a bitch. What a, he's, he's got me right on the edge. Gosh, oh, 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 oh,
0: oh, oh, from now
2: on, call me the edge. Oh, no, that was Irish. Oh, no, that was British. That was British. Sorry about that. Britosh. Uh, so Ivan and Peter would not return for another rehearsal, so the band numbered five at this time. Uh, originally, they were named
0: Feedback, which they picked because it was the only audio term that they knew. <laughs> and they weren't great, either. Apparently not. Uh, they played a lot of punk
2: tunes, mm-hmm. co- a lot of covers and they did not play them well. Uh they would get their first paying gigs at dances locally and when they and then would change their name to The Hype, which is not any better. No. And the older uh the edges older brother Dick, who was in college at the time, he was the odd man out and he would leave shortly after the name change, leaving the band numbering four as it remains to this day in so, that configuration.
0: Older Dick left the band hanging is what you're saying. Dick left the band. All right. Uh, In April
2: 1978, Steve Averill, a friend of Adam Clayton's, would offer the band six suggestions for possible band names. One of the choices was U2, and the guys would immediately gravitate towards that one as it was a bit ambivalent. And to quote Bono, it was the name that they hated the least. (laughs) That's pretty good. Right. So Steve Averill would become one of their art directors and would be part of the design team for the cover of The Joshua Tree as well which I'm sure we'll talk about. We'll
0: we'll get back to him. All right.
2: Dick Evans, while being phased out of the band at this time, was not completely done with them. He played one last show as The Hype, playing songs and covers that they had written, and then ceremoniously walked off stage with the band. And then the band then returned a short time later as a four-piece, as U2, like a couple minutes later, and played another set of U2 originals. And I'd say... That's a pretty classy move. It is. For a bunch of 16 and 17-year-olds at the time.
0: If you do any research into U2, you read stories like this throughout their whole history about how they would do things like this, or they uh, they would have, you know, even very early on, they would have a very big stage presence, and they would do, you know, fun things on stage and get audience interaction. That's the kind of stuff that's really hard to teach artists. You can teach people to play better music. Mm-hmm. It's hard to give them to teach them like stage presence and personality, especially as a group. And I think that U2 has had it since the beginning.
2: Yeah. Yeah. You can't teach that, and nor can you teach kindness and humility. Yeah. Which, as much as Bono can seem to be a pretentious kind of guy, the humility I believe that he has with people that are close to him is a, is a, it's a big thing. As it's definitely a big thing for him. But anyway, Dick, uh, the Edge's brother, would eventually join another band called the Virgin Prunes. Yes. And that band would act, uh, would act as the de facto warm-up band for U2 in the early years of the band. In mid-1978, U2 would be connected with Paul McGinnis, who would become their manager for the next 34 years.
0: So just a short run. Yeah. Just, a, just
2: quick. Uh, his aggressiveness put them in venues that were beyond their their scope and ability, uh, but managed to put them in front of people that would have otherwise been beyond their reach. In 1980, they played in a 2,000-seat theater in Dublin, where one of the A&R reps from Island Records, Bill Stewart, happened to be in attendance. He was impressed with them, offered to sign them to the label, because that's how it happened back then. Uh, The next month, they signed a four-year, four-album contract with Island Records, replete with a £50,000 signing bonus and a £50,000 touring budget. Wow. The rest, as they say, is rock and roll history. (laughs) So the first three albums, Boy, October, and War, are good albums by anyone's measure, but they aren't great albums, and it made them moderately successful in the States and a little more so in the UK. Uh, the hits from those albums, "Sunday Bloody Sunday," "Yes," "New Year's Day," mm-hmm. "I Will Follow," were decently successful, and you knew about them, you heard them if you were if you were a music fan. But their fortunes changed on June fifth, nineteen eighty three. On that night at the Red Rocks Amphitheater, just outside Denver, Colorado, they performed what would become one of the most iconic music videos of all time. Yeah, uh, lit by torchlight under a soaking rain. Their performance of Sunday Bloody Sunday would become, as Rolling Stone would call it, one of the 50 moments that changed the course of rock and roll. Uh, The video from that song would enter into heavy rotation on MTV, and the video Under a Blood Red Sky would cement their reputations as live performers. Ironically, the concert was very nearly cancelled for the very thing that gave it so much drama. The weather. Yeah. Two (laughs) warm-up bands, The Alarm and The Divinals... Different Divinals than I Touch Myself. Uh, What? the same Divinals. Oh, I did
3: not
0: look that up, and that makes me so disappointed. (laughs) I was like, that's great. Different Divinals.
2: Uh, Canceled their sets because of the inherent danger of performing in those conditions. Denver in June, storms, lots of lightning. You
0: might get struck by lightning.
2: It's bad. And the way that the film is shot, you would think that it was packed that night. But actually, the 9,000-seat theater had only 4,400 people <laughs> because so many had stayed home due to the condi- uh, the conditions. And I can honestly say that that was one of the first times that I actually heard of the band. Mm-hmm. Like I mentioned, the video was in heavy rotation, and I was getting into music about that time, so I saw that video pretty much every day because MTV was such a heavy presence. I liked the song, but I was mesmerized by that video, and I was pretty convinced when I saw it, that the concert had taken place somewhere in Europe. Mm-hmm. I, I, there's no way I believe that it was, you know, in Denver, just outside Denver, because it just had that feel to it, that, that, you know, when he was singing, you could see his breath, it just, you know.
0: It's yeah, it's a, it's a fantastic, the, the Live at Red Rocks, the full video recording of that entire performance yeah, is phenomenal. Well. It, it sounds good, it looks amazing, mind-blowing. I wouldn't find
2: out till years later that it had been filmed about an hour from where we lived in the 90s, just outside Denver, and it's still an amazing concert film, like you just mentioned, one that I still own on VHS.
0: Nice,
2: Love that. I love it. (laughs) So just after that, they uh, signed a lucrative extension with Island Records, Uh, but they feared that they were about to turn into a bloated arena rock band and two commercials, like zeppelin or the who yeah and they wanted to make a different sort of album something artsy nay fartsy
0: it is both artsy and fartsy fartsy.
2: so the edge at that time had taken a liking to the work of brian eno and his production partner daniel Lenoir. and if you know anything about those guys they are known for a much more ambient almost avant-garde sound and naturally this scared the shit out of the record company (laughs) when they seemed to be poised for superstardom even at the time, being called the biggest band of the 80s yeah. by Rolling Stone in 1985. 1985.
0: It was only halfway through the
2: 80s. How did Rolling Stone know? How did they know? Maybe it's one thing they got right. So for an example of what Eno and Lanois do, I suggest, of all the listeners out there, I suggest you go listen to a song called The Waiting Room on Genesis's 1974 album, oh, Lies yeah. Down on Broadway. Clicks and beeps and whistles and absurdity pepper that song, and their production is listed in the credits as Inosification, utilizing Brian <laughs> Eno's surname as a verb. It's the strangest thing on an already <laughs> strange record. But go check it out. So they set to work on the next album that would become The Unforgettable Fire. Uh, because this episode isn't about that record, I'm not going to go into it too much, but it was weird for them, which may be exactly what they wanted. Yeah, It's much more atmospheric uh, the style of Eno forced Bono to do things he wasn't really comfortable with. Namely, leaving lyrics for songs mostly incomplete. He has always said that one of his biggest regrets was leaving uh, Pride, in the name of love, unfinished. But Eno really pushed a near improvisation of, of lyrics. Yeah, The departure certainly didn't hurt their standing or the commercial performance of the record. It hit number 12 on the Billboard 200. sells It sold millions of copies. And then this record. Hmm. So after taking some time off and recording a short EP well, and a live
0: album called Wide Awake in America, go ahead. Also in between, Live Aid. I forgot about Live Aid. July 13th, 1985, which a lot of people say is the point where U2 went from being a big band to being a really big band. Live because U2, 72,000 fans in Wembley Stadium at this huge event, one point five billion people worldwide right. watching Live Aid. And, and Led and, Zeppelin had shit the bed. Right.
2: <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, But
0: Bono dancing, and a, this, that's the performance where he gets down and dances with the lady in the crowd. Yeah, yeah. And there's the famous video of it that was played over and over on YouTube, or on not YouTube, on MTV. Would have been played over and over on YouTube over today. Over and over, yes. Uh, but uh, made them huge, huge stars. And their last album, The Unforgettable Fire, not what a lot of people were expecting. Correct, and so you suddenly have 1.5 billion people clamoring for something. Uh, people what's start you taking of them? I
2: don't know. People start taking a different look. Exactly. I forgot all about that. Oh, I can't believe you forgot about live. I did. I lived through it. I watched it. Well, that's weird.
0: Uh, that's yeah. weird. I was uh, one year old when live happened. So, oh, shut <laughs> hey, asshole. Anyway, but, so they released an EP
2: called "Wide Awake in America." Uh, and they were set to start working on this record in January of 1986. Uh, they would eventually take almost a full year to record the album, pausing twice for a couple of Bono's now fairly commonplace humanitarian trips. They decided that they mm. wanted to take a much, uh, make a much more direct-sounding record with normal-ish song structures, less experimentation, and a little louder sound. So that change coupled with the lyrical move to painting an almost mythical America would result in an album that was in direct contrast to almost all other popular music at the time. Oh yeah. As usual, Kyle, do you have the vitals for this particular
0: record? I do. Okay. Uh, released March, 1987. Uh, like you said earlier, produced by Daniel Lenoir and Brian Eno, uh, engineered by Mark Flood Ellis. Uh, and he said, oh, it's him again. Marking the first time he had worked with you two album was received with a lot of critical acclaim when it came out. Where did Flood show up before when we were talking about it? Was it Depeche Mode? I think it was Depeche Mode, yeah. Because Flood produced U2 and Depeche Mode. I'm sorry, engineered U2 and Depeche Mode. And uh, I can't think of his name now. Anton Corbin? Anton Corbin is the uh, art director. Art director. There's there's another term for it. I've got it later in my notes. We'll get to it. We'll get to it. He's the, anything visual that Depeche Mode or U2 create goes through. Ch- channels through him. Visual, visual, let's call them the visual fancy pants. Visual fancy pants. That's the term, okay. technical term. But it did shoot to number one spot in over 20 countries worldwide. Huh? Really? Yeah. Uh, in the UK, it received platinum certification 48 hours after release and sold over 235,000 copies in the first week. Is that a lot? That's a lot okay. Uh, for the UK. Spent nine consecutive weeks at number one in the U.S. Uh, With or Without You, and I still haven't found what I'm looking for, were both number one hits in the U.S. U2 uh, became the fourth rock band ever to be featured on the cover of Time Magazine because of this album. Uh, and this album received four Grammy nominations. And it won Album of the Year and Best Rock Performance by a Duo or group with vocals. Mm. Uh, It would also go on to become one of the best-selling albums of all time, 25 million copies certified sold. Yikes. That is a lot of copies. So
2: for a lot of people, me included, it's a transformational record. So for me, 1987 was a year that exploded the music scene for me personally. I was a music fan before that of many genres, but something happened that year. I looked at the list of the best albums of 1987. Eighty-seven, and it's a little crazy. Michael Jackson's "Bad" was released in eighty-seven. Great album. Def Leppard's "Hysteria," a fantastic album. Guns N' Roses' "Appetite for Destruction" came out the year before, but got popular this year. Hmm. Def Leppard's, oh, I said that. Uh, "Licensed to Ill" by the Beastie oh. Boys. "Sign of the Times" by Prince. Oh, White Snake's White Snake album. Rest in peace, Tony Katane. Countless other massive records, and of course, this one. It was the first summer that I was allowed to go to concerts with people other than my older brother. Oh, cool. So I could be more selective about the shows I wanted to see. Uh, I could go to the Monsters of Rock show, or I could go see White Snake, Def Leppard, and GNR at the castle in Charlevoix if I wanted, which I did. <laughs> and I did. And while that offered so many great experiences to the music that I loved, it help- also helped quicken my slide into poor decision making. But it was still fantastic. So for me, I was never a U2 fan, so to speak. I liked some of the videos and some of the songs were just okay to my young ears. The guitar, while interesting, was kind of plain, and Bono's voice always seemed to be straining for something, pleading with me to listen to his cause, whatever that happened to be. So I wasn't crazy about it. By the summer of 87, I had heard the hits and was familiar with them because, as usual, they were in heavy rotation on MTV, so we saw them constantly. Uh, They were good songs, but I really didn't dig much deeper than that because I was currently obsessed with hair metal and the fact that my other favorite band, Marillion, had just released the first album since Misplaced Childhood. So I was wearing that tape out and not really paying attention. So I had just finished my freshman year of high school and I had begun the annual trek of moving up north in Michigan. We've got Michigan fans, you know what I'm talking about. Moved up north in Michigan to our newly finished college, uh, cottage on Lake Huron, uh, just outside the tourist town of Mackinac City. Everybody knows. Huh. Uh, my parents had required that I would begin my life in the workforce this summer, and I had secured a position at the newly renovated and reopened Old Mill Creek State Park. Ooh! Uh, it featured a completely reconstructed water-powered sawmill, and several ongoing archaeological digs on site. So I worked at the snack bar and would make several lifelong friends at that establishment. And one of the simple joys of the job was the stereo that we had in the kitchen. And we all took turns bringing in our favorite tapes and intended to make the day go faster. Yeah. Uh, This is when I was exposed fully to the Joshua Tree. Uh, Jason Anderson had brought it in, and I was transfixed by the cinematic quality of the entire record. Because I had heard the hits, but I hadn't heard the whole thing as a package. And I wanted to hear it every day. A- in contrast to what I had been listening to at the time, it was so simple and a little bare, but it spoke to me. And besides the hits, so many of the other songs on here have become so important to me and transformational. So it's a transform—it's a transformational record for a lot of us, and we're going to talk about that. But uh, you want to talk about the cover art a little yeah.
0: bit? Yeah. So uh, designed by Steve Avril. Uh, who is an Irish graphic artist, designer, art director, and former punk rock vocalist. Weirdly enough, for Ireland's first punk rock band called the Radiators from Space, which is, uh, they are not great. (laughs) No offense to Steve Avril. Uh, They're not a great punk band. It's not great. It's not great. But they were first. So uh, Avril also attended Mount Temple Comprehensive School. Uh, which is where all four members of U2 uh, also went to school. Yep. So he's known them for a very long time, and he is actually the one who suggested the list of names uh, from which the band would pick the name Mm -hmm. U2. The album sleeve was based on U2's request to depict the record's imagery and cinematic locations out in the desert. Uh, And since the album's working titles were The Desert Songs and The Two Americas, the initial concept for the sleeve was to represent where the desert met civilization. Uh, the group decided early in the creative process to photograph in the U.S. Uh, versus Ireland or Europe, which they had done for all their previous albums. Photography was by uh, Anton Corbin, uh, who we spoke about in our Depeche Mode episode and earlier in this episode, uh, and who is the, uh, I guess, just creative director behind all the visual output of both bands. Pretty much, yeah. I th- swear to God there was another term there, but whatever. Creative director, that works. Creative director works. Um over several days in December 1986, the band with Avril and Corbin traveled around the Mojave Desert for a photo shoot. On the evening of the first day of shooting, Corbin told the band about Joshua trees, hardy and twisted plants in the desert of the southwestern U.S., uh, and suggested they use a picture of one of them for the album. Sleep. I got one on my front. I got one on my front lawn. Right, you do. You have a pretty good sized one out yeah. there too. Weirdly enough, uh, Bono was so pleased to discover that the uh, the plants had actually been named by Mormon settlers. After the Old Testament prophet Joshua, uh, as the tree's shapes reminded the settlers of Joshua raising his hands in prayer, which Matthew and I are both now doing, although none of you can see it because yep. we're not videoing this one. It looks like this. Yeah. Uh, you can picture it. The next day, apparently Bono woke up and then declared that the album name would be The Joshua Tree. Probably in a very, very,
2: very way. bono way. Very bono
0: way. He came down and he had his glasses on. And everybody else was just eating like a continental breakfast. And at some, sunglasses. Some <laughs> shitty hotel. And he, he stood in just like a perfect lighting situation. Like Always. golden hour light coming in. He took off his glasses and just looked up at them and was like, we're going to call the album The Joshua Tree. And then walked away. And then put the glasses back on real slow and walked out. And everybody's like, do you want a bagel? Like Adam or a, Clayton's like, what the fuck was yeah. that? Do you want some? <laughs> do you want a breakfast, Bono? Or a, nah. No. no. No breakfast. No. No. I got to tell uh, – I'll come back to it. I got to tell you my favorite Bono story. Oh. I know everybody's heard this one. I'm going to tell it right now. Why tell, it, tell it right now. So I believe it was on the tour for the Joshua Tree. They were performing in Scotland. And uh, everybody's heard this story, but I love this story. And towards the middle of the, the song, uh, uh, Bono was clapping his hands. And he started to clap his hands over his head. And he said, every time I clap my hands – A child in Africa dies, and some Scottish fan from the back of the auditorium yelled,
3: Stop clapping your hands, you cunt!
0: (laughs) (laughs) That is just... It is such a good story. I don't know whether it's actually true or not. I have heard that same story in some variation or another, probably a hundred times. Okay, that's funny. That's a funny it's story. A, it's one of my favorite Bono stories. That's a great story. Just some Scottish because it's one of those moments where the whole arena Stop is clapping. dead, dead quiet, and he's clapping his hands. You're killing and people every time I clap my hands, a child dies in Africa, and then just somebody in the <laughs> back, perfect timing, just boom. Well, that's awesome. I love that one. But yeah, that's a great story. Right? so It's uh, moments like that, Kyle, that are just... mm, Right? mm, uh. Chef's kiss. (laughs) (laughs) So anyways, Bono says, we're calling the album The Joshua Tree. And uh, later on that same trip, they found a lone Joshua tree near Darwin, California, which ended up being the one. Yeah. Uh, It's the one that appears on the album cover and throughout the artwork. Uh, Sadly, that tree uh, fell down in 2000. Still a popular tourist spot, though. yes. There's a plaque there, in fact, that says that has been placed by fans that says, uh, "Have you found what you're looking for?"
2: Yeah, dead tree,
0: right? It's a dead, it's a dead Joshua tree. <laughs> um, ultimately, though, the cover ended up being a, a shot of the group at uh, Zabriskie Point, while an image of them with the tree, the Joshua tree, appears on the back. Uh, the center gatefold has an image of U- uh, the entire band with uh, a Joshua tree in the middle. Zabriskie Point's in Death Valley National Park. Yes, have you ever been there? I have been there, yes. It is fabulous. It is very bizarre out there. the brisky point is so weird. It just looks dead and weird, but... It's cool. So uh, one other interesting thing about this album cover, CDs were fairly new at the time, Mm. still. Uh, And so the decision was made to try different cover images for each format of the album. So the original CD cover has a very blurry, distorted photo of the band on it, while the cassette has a different photo, but much clearer. Uh, And later, after... They determined that kind of wasn't a great look for it, so later on, all of them used the artwork from the LP on the CD and the cassette cover.
2: I have uh, a bunch of LPs right here in front oh, of yeah. me that are that are from this record. I see. Oh yeah, it is blurry. It, yeah, son
0: of a bitch. Producer Randy actually uh, somewhat accidentally. Who is that? <laughs> nobody knows. Sometimes I ought like to be blurry on the covers of me albums. <laughs> Uh, pretty produ- Pretentious boob. Producer Randy uh, uh has a a collection of uh albums. Now mm. uh, I guess they're those are singles. Singles, those are the singles. Yeah. um But it's all the singles that were released for uh, uh the Joshua Tree. He doesn't know how
2: he got them. They just showed up at his front door. He mysteriously one mysteriously
0: appeared at his door one day. Well, that's a even a better ago.
2: story. It's like how'd you get them? I don't know. They just showed up. I wish stuff like that. I wish I didn't get junk mail. I wish I got that right.
0: Just an uh, album showing up here. Should we take a, a quick, a brief pause? Yeah, let's take and, a break uh, and then, then we'll come back and do the track by track. Sounds good. Because I'm also going to pee again. <laughs> got to pee. I've got to pee again.
3: And we're back, coming back from a commercial break right now.
0: <clears throat> Matthew, you what? know where we are? Where? We're where
2: the streets have no name. Oof! So, while you know that I am not big for slow openings to records, yes, this is one that works perfectly. Oh, yes, it does. That really slow build with the guitars and drums moving like the front of an army marching into battle. Mm-hmm. It's the really—it's a perfect way to begin this record. So, this was the third song off the record peaking at number 13 on the Billboard Top 100, and it's a
0: truly, it's a wonderful song. It is. What's crazy to me about this, too, is, uh, and we'll kind of circle back around to this a little bit, the B-side on the single of this song was Sweetest Thing. Not on the record. Not on the record. Uh, Huge song when it was later released in 1998.
2: It was on like a Greatest Hits record, right? Yeah.
0: And also, side note: uh, one of sweetest thing was one of the first songs I ever downloaded digitally. Really? Yeah. Torrent. Uh, yes. <laughs> Actually, I think it was before that. I oh. believe it was. Uh, believe it was even pre Napster. Whoa! Because the the first song I ever downloaded you was old. Uh, "One Week" by the Bare Naked Ladies. That's a good song. And my computer at the time could not play it. <laughs> I didn't have enough power. Oh my god! It was so slow. <laughs> oh my god! Times have changed. It took like six hours to download I one song. I can play it on my I watch right it, now. Right. Uh, and then this would have been probably in the first ten songs that I downloaded. Sweetest wow. thing, I'm sorry. Sweetest, sweetest thing, thing yes. Yeah. So, so it's a wonderful song. It is.
2: And yet, according to producer Brian Eno, it was the most complicated track mm-hmm. on the record, probably the most complicated of their careers. And he estimated that half of the recording time of the entire album was devoted to trying to get it, get this song right. Uh, Adam Clayton likened it. To trying to learn a foreign language because there were so many changes in it, yeah, which is weird because I don't hear that. But so during the recording sessions, uh, Eno resorted to the writing writing down the the myriad changes on a blackboard and walking the band through all of the trouble spots. He said he felt <laughs> quote like a fucking nerd, and they spent weeks on a single take of the song. It got to the point. That every track on the demo had been replaced multiple times and had become such a headache that he planned on creating an accident where he would have mistakenly erased the tapes of the song, thereby forcing the band to go back to square one on their performances. As the story goes, assistant engineer Pat McCarthy returned to the control room as Eno was getting set to erase the tapes, dropped his T... And physically restrained Eno so he couldn't <laughs> record over them. True or not, that's a great fucking story. Oh, it's a good story. That's great. I, uh, My tea.
0: <laughs> no. Don't
2: ruin a song. <laughs>
0: so, according, You have something. Oh, I was just going to say that uh, somebody that I worked with in the past was for many years, a, um, I believe they called them uh, tape handlers. Uh, his whole job was to handle all the tapes in a recording studio they need a for better, many, many years. They need a better title than that. But uh, I'm a tape handler. What he, do you do all day?
2: Well, I handle tape. tape. Oh, yeah. He That's did,
0: however, gonna... say that uh, there were many, many times where people would be like, you know, oh, just erase those. Just erase that. That's no good. And instead, he would take it and put it in a cupboard somewhere and hide it. And then, of course, a week later, somebody would be like, oh, that was the perfect take. And he'd be like, aha. <laughs> and he'd pull it back out and be like, we still have it you like, it hasn't been erased. I 20. get a raise, right? No. But, Great. Well, he was a union dude, and this was 1980, 81. Ooh, back and ago. he was making like $22 an hour. Back in the day. So, 22, $22 an hour. In, in the 1981. Early 80s. That's pretty good. Yeah.
2: During the energy they, crisis?
0: They were well paid. Anyways, uh, uh, a lot of people have said that this song is probably about uh, Ethiopia. Which yes. Which was Bono in between the recording of the last album and this album. Bono traveled extensively to Africa and Central America to see what was going on there with all the famine in Ethiopia and all the war and uh, basically insurgency in in Central America. Mm -hmm. And uh, a lot of people say that uh, this song is about Ethiopia and that Bono wrote it as such, but more than likely, it's actually about the divisions that exist within uh, his own country of Ireland. Uh, There's a division between North and South Ireland. Right. There's that Protestant-Catholic division. There's a very strong division between the rich people and the poor people in both Ireland's. Um, There's also a very strong uh, upper-class, lower-class division that still exists in um, Great Britain and Ireland, both Ireland's. Um, However, Bono did say in an interview with Rolling Stone in 2005, quote, "...all this stuff about deserts and the parchedness of the earth." I wrote those things on Air, on Air India sick bags and scraps of paper sitting in a little tent in a town called Ajabar in northern Ethiopia. It's a sort of odd, unfinished lyric, and outside of the context of Africa, it doesn't make any sense, but it contains a very powerful idea. In the desert, we meet God. In, a, in parched times, in fire and flood, we discover who we are. That's nice. So I kind of think this song was written in Ethiopia under the influence of everything that was happening there. About his homeland.
2: So he also said, he said, the guy in the song recognizes the contrast and thinks about a world where there aren't such divisions between income and religion. And he says, a place where the streets have no name. To me, that's the, that's the way a great rock and roll concert should be. A place where everyone comes together. And maybe that's the dream of all art, to break down the barriers and divisions between people and touch upon the things that matter the most to all of us. I mean... He hits a nerve. He does. Like, he has a way, pretentious or not, he has a way of speaking to people. Like, not only is this a great song, uh, but it's one of those songs that has become, like, tattooed into my memory. So, my mom was always looking for ways to bond or connect with her increasingly distant and musically obsessed son (laughs) about the time of this song's release. Uh, And she loved this song. And used to call it the wicked, 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 wicket" song because <laughs> she would mimic the unique guitar part that the Edge had created. This part right here. laughed about that for years after that after we used to listen to that song <laughs> and it would it would do the job of at least keeping us temporarily connected for at least 4 minutes you know <laughs> with this song and it still makes me smile and think of her when i hear it and it's nothing but good memories it's just one of those things it's always happy memories you know you have songs that are like bum you out yeah when you're thinking about someone that's passed away but this one like always great memories and I love it I love it this the song was you know immortalized
0: by the music video yeah uh go ahead. It's, it I was gonna say it's the uh the probably the most famous of YouTube's music videos you oh YouTubes my God. YouTube's you two's music videos <laughs> all of YouTube's all of YouTube's music videos it's probably the most famous u two's <laughs> music videos it is the one mimicking the Beatles performance on the rooftop and apparently, this like it shut down a huge part of the town and, and caused all kinds of problems. And but it's 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 an iconic video.
2: Yeah. They they mimicked uh, the 1969 rooftop See, concert. You
0: have better details than I
2: well. Do. And they did it unannounced in downtown LA on top of a liquor store. And they wanted to be shut down yeah. and wanted to cause a huge stir, and they wanted roads get shut down because everyone knows how much LA people hate roads being shut down. <laughs>
1: uh,
2: according to manager Paul McGinnis, getting shut down was integral to the video, uh, and they would eventually get shut down by the police, but according to McGinnis, a lot of those interactions were completely staged.
0: Oh, of course they
2: were. Uh, and this video would win Grammy... For video of the year, <laughs> uh, which is awesome. Yeah. Uh, but the song got new life in 2002 when U2 performed it during the Super Bowl halftime show. Uh, during the performance of the song, they projected all the victims of the 9-11 attacks on a stark black background. Uh, it is still super powerful. If you watch yeah. today, Sports Illustrated has named this number one on the list of top 10 Super Bowl halftime shows. I can see that. It's uh, It was a pretty amazing moment. I could have done without the Bono having like the American flag on the inside yeah, of his jacket, flipping and his, flipping his flipping jacket it open. open. And I'm like, yeah. all right, right, it's a little heavy
0: handed. You could have just stuck with a video, but fine, yeah, it's fine. It uh, this is by far the the U two song that I have heard the most. Yeah, uh, I think so. Yeah, I, I have heard this song probably 200 times, and 200 the reason times. being that uh, in one of my previous jobs, I was working as a uh, a video an AV person at a university and uh, we have to use, we used to have to do these uh, dance concerts at the end of every semester for the <laughs> dance department. I think you told me this one story of them, before. one of them was uh, they wanted a video created to go along with this dance that was some of the students were choreographing to this song. This is actually a different story than the one you're thinking about, mm. I think, because this one is actually the video that I created for this is actually one of the things that I'm the most proud of that oh? I created out of working at the university. Uh, it's a very, the, the most depressing thing about it though, is it's a video I'm, I'm very happy with. I love the way that it, it works with the audio. I loved the way that it worked with the dancers on stage. It was, it was great. I'm very happy with the way everything turned out. I can't fucking show it to anybody. Why? Music is copyrighted. The video clips that I used are copyrighted and the dance choreography is copyrighted. You can show it to me. I could probably show it to you. You can show it to me. I want to to see see, it. I'll have to see if I still have the video. I want to see it. I'm sh- I for sure have the, the video we played on stage. I don't know if I have the video I shot with the dancers. Oh. but uh, So that explains
2: it. the 200 times. Yes. If you were listen at,
0: to it over and over. If you were editing Is this synced up frame by frame? Is this synced up frame by frame? Is That's this synced cool. up frame by frame? It was a lot of fun, and I, I am very proud of the way it turned out.
2: But, but. really, the big question about that is, mm-hmm. have you found what you're looking for? I still haven't found what I'm looking for. Oh, my God. Second single released from the record. Mm-hmm. Probably the song that U2 is best known for. Close. Probably right around there. It, oh, I would say probably
0: yeah. very high up on the list. It's arguable.
2: Was- but uh, it was their second consecutive number one song in the States. Rolling Stone has named this number 93 on the list of the top 500 songs of all time. Oh,
0: yeah. uh, no, I'd say weirdly enough, this was actually, the song was uh, inspired by a trip the band took to a grocery store. Uh, where they had trouble finding a uh, booberry cereal.
2: <laughs> is that serious?
0: No. Okay. Uh, that is from a Coden O'Brien skin <laughs> oh, okay. from uh, uh, several years ago called Celebrity Secrets. Okay, good. Because I'm like, I did not see that at <laughs> all. You, do you remember the Celebrity Secrets thing yes. that Conan used to do? Yeah. He had U2 on one time and their secret one of the secrets was that uh they weren't even Irish. Oh, so- uh and the other <laughs> one of the others was that they um that what they were looking for, was, were looking for was blueberry cereal at a grocery store. Uh. I looked everywhere to find that clip online and I cannot find it anywhere. So please if you are listening to this and you have a copy of this clip send us a link judo.com. I want to see it again. Better looked, yet
2: It's so hard. If you're Conan O'Brien. And you're listening to our podcast. Just give us a call. We'll talk to you.
0: Yeah, of course. Uh, He's freed up now. His show just ended. It's ended. He's got tons of free time.
2: The song originated as a demo called The Weather Girls that The Edge would compare to, quote, a cover of Eye of the Tiger played by a reggae band. Oh, my. That's weird. Yeah, it is. Uh, the entire demo would get reworked and eventually get released on one of the many anniversary edition re releases over the years. Uh, the, it's, the song is essentially based off of this weird tom tom drum pattern that Larry Mullen Jr. is playing. As drummers go, he isn't very good. Fair enough. Um, he can hold his own in this style of playing, but there's nothing super technical or amazing about his drumming. Uh, but what he lacks in musical chops. He more than makes up for an innovation and trying new beats and otherwise conventional songs. Hmm. And he does that very, very uniquely. The Edge uh, continues his delay work with a sound that Bono used to call Chrome Bells. Ooh. Um, The chimes in this song. But the real star of this song is the typically forgotten member of the band, bassist Adam Clayton. The bass line propels this song forward and gives it a really heavy bottom (laughs) that you get (laughs) you get entranced by the song like you're floating down a river and it sounds kinda like this.
0: this is the song that won them the Grammy for uh, best performance by a duo or group with vocals in 1988. Mm -hmm. However, Adam Clayton missed the presentation at the Grammys because he was in the bathroom. Uh oh. <laughs> just taking a shit. Maybe. I got uh, a shit. I, I got to assume at that theater, it's probably a long way. You got to get up and you got to uh, go out and a seat filler comes in and sits down. And then you got to make your way out of the theater and you got to find, where's the restroom? I don't know where it is. is can I go in this one? Am I going to get mugged? What's going on? And then you're going to go in that bathroom. And then you're going to be oh, there's a line. And you're waiting in line. And then you hear, in the and the
3: best grammy for oh, day, no. You too. Oh,
0: shit. And you're going to try to get back and you're not going to make it in time. And then you're going to. Pee your pants. I assume he your pants. Do they say anything I about? I honestly don't know. I couldn't find a video of this. Damn it. Uh, I couldn't find a video of this either. You can't find any video. Can't find lately. any video for this. So lyrically, I, ha- go ahead. I have to imagine YouTube is probably pretty litigious about keeping videos of anything of theirs off the internet.
2: But- probably they got bank of lawyers. Yeah. Lyrically, the song is pretty much overtly spiritual, and the song mirrors that, almost turning the background vocals into something gospel-related. Yeah. It's a good song, but over the years, I've grown tired of it, basically because all the evangelical churches I've worked for yeah, as a secular technician in a religious environment have claimed this song as their own. They've claimed it as a work of praise, as Bono's worship song. They've even gone so far as to change the lyrics to reflect a more satisfying ending instead of the ambiguous still-searching that Bono intended. You can change the man's lyrics, but you can't change his intentions. Mm, fart noise. It is it is without a doubt a song about his faith. And it's clear that while he still believes that he's chasing that thing we all chase, answers, you know, evangelicals will preach to you that there you have no reason to chase anything. The answer is right in front of you. It's Jesus. That's the answer. Clearly, Bono isn't there. He's still looking. So why the churches would use this as some sort of commercially proselytizing song yeah. is beyond me, and it's not the one that ever spoke to me. It's the next one hmm. that did. What's the next song? Uh-
0: I got one more thing I got to say about Go, this Go, please first. do. I'm sorry to no. ruin your perfect setup. It's okay. I teed it up, and you whiffed. And I totally missed it. <laughs> uh, the music video for this song. Oh, yeah, I forgot. Yeah, shot right here in Las Vegas. Did I leave that out entirely? You did leave this out entirely. Great, another great music video. It's uh, Bono and the Edge wandering around uh, fremont street here in las vegas oh my god i went and, off uh, on a rant what uh serendipitous timing uh, today was my last day working at fremont oh yeah so, what i knew the minute i was like oh that's right this is this music video i was like oh, and we're gonna be recording on that day it works out so well oh but, i know uh, i know why i skipped it it's very interesting to watch this video and see how the buildings look so much the same but the street itself has changed so much. Completely since different. The eighties. It's a totally different place.
2: So, if I remember it correctly, they had just performed a concert at the Thomas and Mac Center.
0: I believe that is correct. Yes.
2: And they had agreed to film a video for some someone mm-hmm. in their camp, and they were bust down there. And he said, basically, just start interacting with people randomly. Yep. And nothing of nothing of it was staged. No. They were it was all just he was going up to people, kissing people randomly. Yeah, he jumps on some
0: guy's car hood yeah. and then starts talking to the guy just randomly. And
2: according according to them also they like the director told Edge to completely ignore Everything that Bono was doing, mm-hmm. and be really like standoffish he's, and serious.
0: He's totally stoic. He has just yeah. a straight face, and he's just playing the guitar.
2: It's a great video. It's I a can't very believe I. Left. Interesting I, video. I opened up. I had another article while I was doing the research, and I'm like, I'll come back to this article so I can tie it in with this video. And mm-hmm. I totally ignored that article
0: entirely. No worries. I, I was kind of surprised when you're like, "Let's go on." I was yeah, like, you're not going to talk about the music video. No, this I one? totally it's forgot. In Las Vegas, where we live. Oh my God! Ugh. Sorry. That's okay. Okay. Matthew. I fucked it up. I would have done it with or without you. Oh, that's sweet.
2: It's one of my top two favorite songs on the record. It's a fantastic song and was the epitome of alternative music on top 40 radio at the time. This is completely unlike anything being played on the radio back then. Uh and so much though, whenever you heard it, it stopped you in your tracks. That quietness, the provocativeness of of it was so interesting and completely haunting so this was the first single released from the record and would become the band's first number one song of their careers and everything was working against it the edge didn't like it mm-hmm. at first he's he seems to not like anything really <clears throat> at first uh eno and lamois refused to work on it initially oh so bono recruited producer gavin friday To help him work on it. His gal Friday. His gal Friday. And when they were ready to release it, the band's manager, Paul McGinnis, was resistant because he felt it was too unusual to get airplay. But producer Friday, my man Friday, was sure it was going to be number one. Hmm. And so it was. (laughs) Surprise, surprise. There are a couple parts of the music that are so important. So one, the restraint shown by everyone. It starts off so passive and quiet, and builds around these really intimate lyrical moments. And you're kind of waiting for it to explode and crescendo, and it never really does. It leaves you kind of wanting more, not quite there. The only thing that really takes off on this song are the vocals that turn from intimate to pleading, and it's a high point vocally for Bono on this record, for sure. The other thing is the ending, the fade out, where it just slowly disappears and seems to fall apart is one of the most effective rock endings in history. It just falls away like this. slow fade's just, oh, it's, you're like, it still didn't happen.
0: It's almost indulgent. Yeah. It's just, it's just so, you're like, end, but it's, it's so good too. It just lasts and lasts and. It's,
2: it's great. So I think I've been abundantly clear about my faith struggles on our show. Agreed. Uh lyric, Lyrically, the song is ostensibly about Bono's struggles at juggling his life as a rock star mm-hmm. and a family man kind of a work balance thing. Uh, But my interpretation, or at least my application of it, is religious. And this was my struggle. I was raised Catholic, went to church every week, went to Catholic school. While doubting back then in 1987, I wasn't nearly as convinced of my atheism as I am now.
1: Mm
2: -hmm. Uh, I was brought up to believe, and at some level, at that point, I still did even though my scientific and underdeveloped analytical brain was fighting me. (laughs) Um, I can't live with or without you. This whole song is about sacrifice. You give it all, but I want more. You give yourself away. I was torn up because I knew what my parents expected me to believe, and I didn't want to let them down or disappoint them. And I knew that I was pretty sure what I believed, and I didn't want to give up that part of my identity. This song became an anthem for me and really described how how I was feeling at the time. Uh, we've talked about how some albums become pivotal because the time they are released of where yeah. they hit you in your life or the time you discover them no more so than this album. And this song specifically told that story for me and I applied it that he was talking about about Jesus and that's like and w- w- I w- went to a whole big thing So (laughs) that's just me, though.
0: Well, that's that's. uh, I love stories like that, though, where there's it's a pivotal song on a pivotal album for you, especially because, like you said earlier. This probably wouldn't be an album that you would pick up normally, unless somebody else played it for you, and you heard it, and you're like, oh, wow, that's actually pretty good, I need to listen to that more. Uh, uh, From a technical standpoint, uh, one of the standout things in this is the guitar. Uh, uh, The Edge uh, used a distortion device called an infinite guitar.
2: The infinite guitar, yeah. To get that
0: huge, that wailing guitar effect. The one that he almost got electrocuted by multiple times? I believe that's the (laughs) one, yes. Uh, (laughs) Oops. It was was invented by a guy named uh, Michael Brook. Uh, who is friends with the edge and uh Daniel Lenoir. Lenoir. Uh they did only two takes of this song and picked the best one for the guitar part anyway. Oh, for the guitar part. Yeah. That's pretty awesome. Yeah, right? That's uh, you got to have a little bit of confidence in yourself when you do one and you're like, let's just do one more. And then you do one more and you're like, yeah, one of those will be fine. You know what? That's good. I think
2: we're done here. Yeah, right? Yeah. Two. Yeah. Bullet just the blue fine. B- Bullet the blue sky? Bullet
0: the blue sky.
2: So we go from one of the quietest songs in the record to uh, by far the loudest, and my other favorite tune from the Joshua Tree. It is definitely "You 2 with balls. Yes, it is. Uh, the song was written after Bono and his wife had traveled to Nicaragua and El Salvador.
0: And
2: they saw firsthand how the local population was affected by U.S. military intervention in the region. In a career-filled... With songs about politics, this is probably the most overt yes. of all of those. So the music is extremely effective at producing a sound that mimics military action. The martial beat of the drums with the ca uh, the guitar sound that moves from ear to ear like a jet flying past, plus the slide work by the edge in the middle of the song, they all paint a picture that even without the lyrics would sound pretty militaristic to me.
0: Yes, I would agree.
2: Bono told The Edge when they were recording to, quote, put El Salvador through an amplifier, (laughs) resulting in the feedback heavy guitar licks used throughout. Like this.
0: the edge apparently worked out all the music to this with bono's influence but without actually hearing the lyrics and then he squoze the lyrics into the song who squoze them squoze them i like that uh this is also as you sort of already mentioned this Squozed is it. squoze they squosed this one uh this is also the beginning of uh this is really U 2s first strongly american political song you don't say right this is the beginning and they've done so many since then uh, but this one specifically uh, condemns the U.S. foreign policy uh, in Central America and all the the warmongering that was going on in the mid to late eighties. What? That, yeah, right. Thanks Reagan administration. Right. Uh, one thing I, I could not find the answer to this, and I'm, uh, you might know this off the top of your head. Yeah. Is this the first Bono? Uh, Woo. Uh, it could be. I I, I couldn't. I, I don't know for sure. Yeah, I could not think of a song before this that had one in it. <laughs> But I also did not go back and (laughs) listen. I also did not go back and listen to all of them. Oh, you didn't Uh, listen to War or Boy. No, there's a few other songs on this album that have a woo. He does do a woo, yeah, but not a woo-hoo. No, but he does go on to do that in uh, several other songs in the future. (laughs) We're killing Randy over there. (laughs) Randy's dying. He's dying.
2: Just deep breaths, Randy. What? (sighs) So, one thing I love about Bono's lyrics is that they're like paintings. You don't have to take them literally because a lot of his lyrics don't make any fucking sense. Yeah. Um, But they draw really distinct visuals. Lines like, in the locust wind, or you plant a demon seed, you raise a flower of fire. They're great visuals. Yeah. So, like you said, it's written about the US intervention in Central America that we, you know, we torched through the area in the name of, quote, democracy. Uh,
3: America!
2: And he said the line, suit and tie comes up to me with his face red like a nose on a thorn bush, <laughs> was about Ronald Reagan himself. hmm uh, And he said this about it. He said, quote, he's peeling off those dollar bills, slapping them down, paying for the war. He, in my head, was Ronald Reagan. I did not have a sophisticated understanding of what was going down, but as a student of nonviolence, I had a viol- violent reaction to what I was witnessing. And it's an important, it's such an important song. yes that they've played live cuz they utilize it differently every time they play it. So tour to tour, it's a performance piece. On one tour it was a, the video work was about nazism, another time it was about consumerism, another time it was about handgun violence, and still another it was about religious violence. So it's a powerful section of the show. Yeah. For sure. It's just a great song.
0: And because of that, because of all the reworking and because it can fit in so many of, it can fit as a descriptor for so many of the ills of society, it's been played over 650 times live by the band. That's it? That's, I mean, you think 650, you're like, okay, but then you realize they've only been on, what, two dozen tours, maybe? Something like that, yeah. And you start adding those numbers up, it's like, wow, okay, so they played this a lot. They played They played it in every single tour, every single date. Yeah. And it's like, oh, okay, that makes more sense now. It does make sense. What? Oh, I was just going to say one other. You you mentioned the line, the locust wind comes. Yeah. uh, And the end of that is a rattle and hum. Rattle and hum. Which is the name of their next album uh, and the companion movie, Rattle and Hum. Rattle and hum. Uh, I thought I should put that out
2: there. You should. Are you running to stand still? Uh,
0: Maybe. It's Uh, a great song. Starts out like a country song. Yeah. It's Uh, one of the tracks that makes me love this record so much. It totally um totally fits with their study of apparently they studied a lot of American country, American blues, old uh uh white I just totally ran my brain off the soul? Track, track there. Old soul music, mm-hmm. uh as well as Irish folk music, uh while they were creating a lot of the sounds for this album. And I think you hear all of that in sure. the song.
2: It, that's why this album sounds so cinematic and evokes that feel. It's, each song is so radically different from the last. Yeah. And you feel like it can go anywhere. It's got that sparse acoustic guitar. Uh, and all of a sudden, it's got a folk feeling. and like different than the feedback soaking from the previous song. Um, the band had requested that Where the Streets Have No Name was first on the track list. And Mothers of the Disappeared was last. And then they let Steve Lillywhite's wife pick the rest of the order. Oh. She should do it for every album for (laughs) everyone because it's perfect. It's absolutely perfect. It's so good. Yeah. So this song is about a heroin-addicted couple living in the Dublin's Ballymoon Flats. Uh, The location is reflected in the line, I can see seven towers, but I can only see one way out. This place was well-known to Bono as he grew up not too far away mm-hmm. and as a child used to play in its foundations. Over the years, it grew more and more dilapidated and would eventually house one of his good friends, who was also an addicted person. Mm. Allegedly, it was this experience with his friend and seeing the hopelessness of what of, of it that would help to form Bono's social consciousness and involvement. Uh, and the song sounds like this.
1: I see seven towers. You see one way out You gotta cry without weeping Talk without speaking Scream without raising your voice You know I took the poison From the poison stream Then I floated out of here
0: This is such a good song, mm-hmm. and it it totally, like, I, I'm not sure I've ever listened to this album beginning to end until we started doing this. Mm. Uh, just, you know, I, I've heard bits and pieces, obviously the the famous tracks, right. and all, all the rest of these I'm sure I've heard in bits and pieces, but actually sitting down and listening to this song, it is, is really amazing, and it's it's such a nice, slow, sad song, but it's not – I guess melancholy is there. A, it's it's sad, but it's not like a depressing song. It's it's, it's sort of hopeful.
2: Described as grim but dreamy.
0: Oh, there you go. That's a good way to put and it. And
2: no doubt that was the influence of Brian Eno and yeah. Daniel Lemoy. Um And the title of the song comes from a conversation Bono had with his brother when he asked how his business was going. Mm-hmm. His brother responded with, "It's like running to stand still." <laughs> and Bono loved the line, and he said it was. He thought it was something. He said what he thought it might like to be addicted to heroin. Huh. So it's got that great harmonica solo at the end by Bono. It's definitely one of the more more moving, emotive songs. It's a great song. There's very few on here that aren't. Right. Haven't come across one yet. Red Hill Mining Town? Red Hill Mining Town. You know know the
0: story behind this. I love this song. I do. I'll let you tell it. All right. So in 1984, the National Union of Mine Workers in the UK... Uh, declared a strike in response to the British National Coal Board's decision to close down a large swath of the United Kingdom's coal mines, which had become unprofitable. A uh, decision which was supported by the Margaret Thatcher government. Hey Maggie, thanks Maggie. Uh, <laughs> do you remember my response uh, many, many years ago in a different podcast that we were recording? <laughs> when asked uh, if I were if I had to sleep with one woman, who my answer was? Did you say Ma- Margaret Thatcher? Margaret Thatcher. It's a power thing, folks. (laughs) (laughs) Anyways. It's uh, the Iron Lady. The Iron Lady. (laughs) She's not for turning, Matthew. She's She's not not for turning. She's not for turning. Uh, Anyways, uh, the civil unrest created by that dispute uh, and the violent confrontations that took place between trade union picket lines and the United Kingdom's police forces, it was one of the most dividing and bitter conflicts in Britain in the 20th century. Uh, It's social and economic impacts – It'd still affect the working class to this day, uh, and it basically destroyed uh, coal mining communities in Wales, uh, the English Midlands, uh, and the North up in Scotland.
2: It's just your basic run in the mill rock song topic,
0: you know, pretty much. Uh, uh, the this song and the lyrics from it were inspired by those events.
2: Yeah, my yeah. Wait, no, 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 that's see, good. Sorry,
0: I, I for sorry, I was totally out of breath, and then I was oh. Like,
2: <sighs> So my favorite uh, lyrical part of this song is the bridge. We scorch the earth, set fire to the sky. We stoop stoop so low to reach so high. Like I said, he is the master at painting those visuals. But that's what makes the song musically. And while the song is by itself excellent, the song is made by one simple sound. The sound of Edge's fingers sliding up and down his strings that make it squeak. Pretty sure my wife would be super annoyed by that sound as soon as I pointed it out, because she hates it, (laughs) but the song would sound weird without it. It sounds like this.
0: I think you just FedEx arrowed a whole bunch of our listeners. What? <laughs> oh, because they didn't hear it? Because they had never heard it before. And so if you don't know what I'm talking about, the FedEx logo, <laughs> if you look at it, then the EX in FedEx, in between those two, it makes an arrow. Uh it subconsciously makes your brain think about all kinds of things like, oh, they're moving and they're on the go, blah, 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 blah. Once you see it, you can't Once un-see you see it. it. You can't unsee it. I think Matthews did that. Now I'm never going to not be able to hear those fingers those sliding squeaks. on the guitar strings. I love those squeaks. They're great, though. I they love- are great. They they definitely add to the overall sound of this this very folk heavy song. Oh, I love this song so much. It
2: I always have. Uh, one of my favorite lines I found about this song when I was researching was when ba- Bono said. Why do I sound like a rich man with (laughs) pound notes stuffed into my pockets when it's supposed to be a song about unemployment? (laughs) turns out there was a reason. Right? I guess the stereo plate reverb effect, looking at you, Randy, was contributing to the feeling that he was describing. So they removed it. Problem solved. (laughs) No more rich man with pound notes stuffed in his pockets. So this was supposed to be the second single from the record but was shelved in place of I still haven't found what I'm looking for which in hindsight was probably the right call. I would agree. Although this is a great song in its own right. I absolutely love this song.
0: I would be curious to know if if this had been the second single. Uh I wonder if this would be a much more popular song. I think I think it I think
2: it would have had to be because the rest of the record would have carried. Yeah. All all of those things. But yeah, very few people know that song at all. Yeah. That's too bad. Hmm. But if they were in God's country, they might. If they were, in which country is that,
0: Matthew? I, I'm thinking it's America. Or is it Ireland? Or is it Ireland? That's Maybe a, it's Nicaragua. Could be either. Could be Ethiopia. Uh, this is another one of those songs inspired by Bonas trips to Central America, specifically Nicaragua in this mm-hmm. case, which he contrasts with the lack of political ideas creating created in the United States and the rest of the Western world. Uh, in the lyrics to this, song, eventually
2: because, uh, he did say that he dedicated it to the Statue of Liberty. Yes, which is weird, but that's Bono. Kind for of,
0: him. I, he seems like the type of person who'd be like, "She's hot, shit. <laughs> What's going on under that doga?"
2: <laughs> it's, but it's got a bunch of desert imagery yes. in it as well, which leads me to believe it probably about America. Uh, so one of the things about you two is that none of the guys in the band are really great musicians.
0: They're all pretty average. I am so glad you brought that up because I was going to save that until the very end. Oh. Let's talk about it for a second. Then. Okay. You two, to me, that is the reason why they are amazing as a band. They have—they are they are mediocre musicians. Absolutely. I do not mean to be rude to no, any of the four. No, they're right? extremely average musicians. They are musicians. average musicians, but they have this huge stage presence and they all seem to be very good people. Pretentious, potentially. Sure a little over the top sure but generally good people who want to do good in the world versus a lot of rock stars who turn into themselves yeah. you know what i mean they they go internally and they say i'm going to start doing this for me i'm going to make money for me for and i'm sure. going to get you know the big house and the nice cars and all the shit for me yeah i feel like they made it big and said we're going to do this but we're going to actually put this back out there. Yeah. We're going to help people with our 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 position and our money and our message. We're going to actually use it to make the world a better place. Yeah. And they seem generally to be
2: positive people. Yes. So positivity, you know, that brings a synergy to this band. Yes. That makes up for the lack of musicianship because the energy level is, is raised and they together, you know, together we're better yeah type situation and it elevates pun intended <laughs> their performances so it's one of the shortest songs on the record but mm-hmm. it's effective and it sounds like this
0: Bill Graham the editor of uh, Hot Press mm-hmm. uh, once said of this song it is quote you two cruising uh, it's start it's a starter and not a main course <laughs> uh, and he also said it is saved by the fact that Bono does Bono better than anybody else <laughs> I love that quote Who else is doing Bono right apparently nobody anymore but so he refers to the US
2: as a desert rose mm-hmm. and a siren whose dress is torn in ribbons and in bows he certainly knows this country Probably better than most Americans do. Yeah. And all the things that are wrong with it. The only thing that remotely felt like the Statue of Liberty to me was the Naked Flame line, which is wonderfully referred to the Naked Flame, which I'd name a band Naked Flame. That's awesome. That's a good band name right there. I know. Song was released as the fourth single from the record and end up at number 44 on the Billboard 100. It might not be my favorite on the record, but it's still good. Yeah. It's still good.
0: Well, that's the thing about a record like this. There's no bad track on nope, this album. There isn't. There's not even a track where I'm like, eh, I skip this one skip usually when it. I listen to it. I pretty much listen to, like I said, I had not listened to this album fully through until very recently, but it's one of the ones where normally when we're doing this, if it's an album I haven't heard before, there's a couple of tracks that after I've heard it once or twice, I'm like, couple eh, of skip it. this one. This one, not so much. This one, I have listened to the whole thing from beginning to end pretty much every time. <laughs> what is that, With or Without You? I don't want to hear that again. Hot garbage.
2: Trip Through Your Wires? Trip Through Your Wires. So the first side of the record is just loaded with hits, like I mentioned. But the second side really nails the desert and more specifically the Southwest imagery. Uh, This song has some great bluesy vibes to it.
0: Oh, yeah.
2: Single isolated guitar. I don't know exactly why, but it feels like the Southwest to me. Kind of dusty old guitar in a super hot, arid ghost town. Sounds like this.
0: the uh, Bono on the harmonica there. Hell yeah. Again, second time on this album. Lyrically, apparently it was a companion to one
2: of the songs that was left off the record, the one that you mentioned earlier, yeah. The Sweetest Thing.
0: Yeah, Bono has said this would have either gone before or after that. Yeah. Uh, I would think probably after. I feel like Sweetest Thing would build into this song. But yeah. Oh, I like that.
2: It definitely feels like it could be a love-ish song, yeah. but it also dabbles in the religious imagery that Bono utilizes all over this record and all of their records, really. Many subtle references to the lessons that Jesus taught, that bringing water to the thirsty, bringing shelter to the homeless, and I think he disguises it in a way that it just goes by you. Yeah. Um, I've Hmm. known these lyrics forever, but really breaking them down lets them in, and I have a complete and new respect and admiration for them. So, I thought Bono was just esoteric and wrote stuff to really confuse people, but there is a ton in there if you're willing to do the work and, and look a little bit. Um there's also some different sounds on here. Bono, like you said, plays yeah. the harmonica. Um also Daniel Lamois plays the omnicord electric auto harp. Yeah. Which is fast cool. which is fantastic on the song. That was like a dog screaming in the in the background. <laughs> uh what else you got? Uh that's
0: it. Yeah, Uh, You just covered everything. I was going to mention Daniel Lenoir playing the uh, Omnichord Electric Auto Harp. The Electric Auto Harp. Fascinating instrument, but uh, not a whole lot of details on it, to be honest with you. I couldn't find anything. One Tree Hill. One Tree Hill. Uh, This is a good song, but when you know the background to it, suddenly it becomes, to me, the saddest song on this whole album. Ah,
2: So, I have always Mm -hmm. loved this song, and uh, now that I know the complete story behind the song... Uh, I love it even more. Uh, I'm sure you found the same research I did, yes. Kyle, so you go ahead and tell oh. the story.
0: So this song was uh, written for a man named Greg Carroll, uh, a Maori man uh, who worked with the band on and off. Uh, uh, the entire album, in fact, is dedicated to him. Uh, like I said, Carroll worked with the band starting in 1984 when they met him during the Unforgettable Fire Tour in New- when they were in New Zealand. Uh, sadly, he was killed. Uh, in an accident in dublin in july 1986 while he was riding one of bono's motorcycles back to he, I, it says back to his house i don't know if he was riding it back to bono's he house was riding it back to bono's okay. house yeah uh, on a rainy night and a car pulled out in front of him uh, and unfortunately he was ejected from the motorcycle He was only 26 years old uh which is super super sad uh the entire band was was absolutely just grief stricken by this event uh, they were able to attend his tanji, or, uh, which is the Maori term for a funeral, uh, back in New Zealand. Yep. Um, and the lyrics uh, were written shortly after the funeral uh, by Bono. Uh, and they talk about first Bono's first time in Auckland uh, when Carol actually took him up to the place called uh, – I hope I'm pronouncing Maunga this Maunga right. Kiki. Maunga Kiki uh, in Maori, or One Tree Hill in English, um, which is a big hill right in uh, near Auckland uh, that has a – giant sort of uh, monolith thing built on top of it by yep. English settlers, and then there was one gigantic tree that was, used to grow out of the top of the hill. That's why it was called One Tree Hill. Sadly, that tree is no more. Uh, it was taken down in October of 2000 because it was so badly damaged Ugh. by two chainsaw attacks oh, Jesus. by Maori uh, natives of New Zealand protesting um, government policies. Um, um, this story is way too big to go into on this podcast but please go look it up. It is a fascinating story and a very sad I didn't um, even
2: read all that. That's terrible.
0: It is a a very sad uh, situation which thankfully since then, 21 years later now, has started to get better um, from what I understand. I'm I'm obviously not the most versed in it and hopefully we have some fans in New Zealand who maybe could fill us in a little bit more on it. Yeah. Uh, or at least point us in the right direction on, on where to learn more about it. Uh, from actual sources versus, you know, wide news stories and things. Right. But uh, a, a very sad uh, uh, story, but uh, a very good song.
2: Yeah. and But wait, there's
0: more. So
2: he also wrote some of the lyrics about Victor Yara, who, oh. who was a Chilean singer-songwriter, who was a symbol of hope and resistance against the Pinochet regime. Oh. Uh, regime. Um, the song, which is one of my favorite sounding songs on the record, sounds like this. One of the main reasons that I love this song so much is the immediacy, that the pleading, the emotion that are present in the vocal delivery of this song. And when, Pono, uh, Pono, when Bono goes into the higher part of his register on any song, I usually take notice. But on this song, it's really especially restrained, and now I know why. Oh, so Bono did this whole song in one take because with all the weight of the song, he didn't think he was ever capable of singing it a second time. And that's awesome. Yeah. I mean, you just uh, – the fact that he got through it is, they, um, is amazing.
0: I, I should have noted this down. I remember reading it, and I didn't. But I know that they didn't perform this song live for many, many, many years. I believe the first time they did was the 20th anniversary tour of this album. Yeah. Uh, the, uh, the, was it the 20th,
2: 20th or the 30th? 30th, I think.
0: Um, And it was because they did the whole album live beginning to end on the tour – and they would talk about Greg Carroll and and, and discuss what the song actually meant mm. to all of them beforehand, and then he would perform the song. But it was a slightly different version. Um, he had toned his vocals down a lot. Oof. Yeah, well, you'd just, have to. Yeah, I mean, it would just be it would just wreck you otherwise. But.
2: So and because this is a question we should ask, mm-hmm. the show One Tree Hill was named yeah. by the creator after this song yes. and was actually played in its last episode.
0: Yes, and one of the characters in the show One Tree Hill was supposedly supposed to be from New Zealand. Uh, played, I believe, played by a New Zealand actor, if I yeah. recall correctly. Uh, and you know that tie in. That's good as of well. them, yeah. Which is is nice, but exit, exit, not the exit to the album, but the no. uh, the second-to-last song. Exit.
2: So, so this song and the next one uh, sound like leftovers from the last album, The Unforgettable mm-hmm. Fire. It, it has that ambient quality and no real specific sound structure. There's a lot of soundscapes being used, but that, that was my opinion. But like most things, I'm totally wrong. <laughs> so this song was written on the very last day of recording and was recorded as one very lengthy take and jam session yeah. and then edited down and it has some really super noisy guitar parts, like this one.
0: Very noisy. And it, it very much – the lyrics in this this song are very dark. Yes. And uh, uh, in the book, uh, "You 2 by "You 2 uh, Bono says he was inspired by Norman Mailer's The Executioner's Song and Truman Capote's In Cold Blood, uh, both famous books about murderers. Uh, quote, this was my attempt at writing a story in the mind of a killer. It's all very well to address America and the violence – that is an aggressive foreign policy, but to really understand that, you have to get under the skin of your own darkness. The violence we all contain within us. Violence is something I know quite a bit about. I have a side of me which, in a corner, can be very violent. It's the least attractive thing in anyone, and I wanted to own up to that. Hmm. Uh, Bono might have also done this a little too well. because uh, uh,
2: You're going to tell the uh, Rebecca yeah. Schaefer
0: side of the story? Yeah. So in uh, 1989, uh, Robert John Bardo murdered a 21-year-old actress named Rebecca Schaefer. Uh, He claimed this song compelled him to kill her. Uh, At the trial, his defense attorney said that the lyric in the song, quote, The pistol weighed heavy, gave Bardo his idea for a mission. Uh, And when the song was played at the trial, apparently Bardo became very animated and sang along to it. Sang along to it. which is sick fuck, man. (laughs) Right? It's it's very interesting to me, too, that uh, so many of the metal bands and the rock bands at the time Took so much of that public outcry shit for their all that lyrics, heat, yeah, and and you know, oh, their lyrics are going to cause kids to you know murder people and everything. And then Bono writes this very emotional song about you know that is about you know murders and death. Right. And this happens. It's directly quoted. You two never took any shit for it. Never took any. Never
2: shit. took any shit. For and if you read the lyrics, they're so they're so nondescript. Yeah, it, it it's not definitive at all what he's talking about. Um. And I get, if you read, the, the only place I see anything is in the last verse, and I see I, I see Mark David Chapman, John Lennon's killer, mm-hmm. in that uh, hand in his pocket, finger on the steel, pistol weighed heavy, and his heartbeat he could feel.
0: Oh, I can absolutely see that.
2: Right? And that's that's what I get from that. A lot of people have said that they think it's about Judas Iscariot, you know, and the waves of regret he'd felt after betraying Jesus. Mm-hmm. And knowing bon- Bono's affinity for religious imagery – I'd say that's not wrong, but, you know. Why not both? Yeah, the John Pardo thing just, uh, yeah, that was, that's, that's a fucked yeah. up shit. Yeah,
0: dude's messed up.
2: Yeah, and that's all I got about Exit, but I got Mothers of the Disappeared. Right,
0: another sad song to end this out with. But, final uh, song on the record, huh? Right, it is the final song on the record. Much like the last song, it seems a little out of place on the record mm-hmm. compared to the other songs.
2: Uh, But I get why he wanted it on here. So the song is mostly composed and played on the Spanish guitar. has another one of Adam Clayton's propelling bass lines, albeit a little more understated. Sounds like it is. So, Bono wrote this song after traveling to South America, learning about the Pinochet regime that was, quote, forcibly disappearing children, a.k.a. killing them. Uh, The group that Bono had been associated with were the mothers of those children, or the Madres de Playa de Mayo. Um, And they would typically take to the streets with pictures of their children and wail at the tops of their lungs for hours with pictures of their children. Um, And this is not the first time that I had heard of that organization. Apparently, the two most vocal activists of the rock and roll 80s, Sting and Bono, uh, had similar experiences with these organizations and were both moved to write songs about it. Sting wrote the song They Dance Alone, or Queca Solo, that was released on his album Nothing Like the Sun in 1987. And this was Bono's song. And they are both excellent moving pieces of work. Yeah, uh, it's no wonder they're not popular, but they're important pieces of work.
0: On uh, February fifth, nineteen ninety eight, you two actually played the uh, uh, an arena in Buenos Aires, and they brought the the mothers of the disappeared, as many of them as they could still find, on stage mm-hmm. with the pictures of their missing children. Um, and after performing the song, the women draped scarves around Bono's neck, and the crowd sang the Argentinian national anthem. <laughs> Uh, and it was the first. Po- it was that was the first time the band had played the song in concert since 1987. Yikes! Yeah, uh, and, and again, I don't blame them. This is this would be a hard song to play, of course, in a concert and get the crowd, you know, really excited about it. Yeah, you got to play this real down song. Yeah, um, I think I, this is a great ending to this album too. It is kind of a downer song, but it's it's nice. It, it's 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 a good message to go out on. It's this positive. Well, not positive, but. It is a, a slow, sort of burnout song. It
2: tells a story exactly. And that's, I mean, and so many of the songs on this record tell stories. And hey, you can't want too much more, yeah, from the band that you're listening to. And that's that's Joshua Tree. Uh, this is one of my very favorite records. It's personal. It's wonderful. Um, and you know, two of my good friends who love music absolutely hate. This record, <laughs> and I've never been able to get out of them why they hate this record. But when any of the songs would come on, they make they make me change the channel. You know, I feel like Ugh. it's personal. So whatever, but I can never go wrong with this record. If it's on, I'm listening to it. That's it. Well, so maybe people hate this record. Yeah, and they want to talk about their own favorite record. Uh, do we have a way for them to do that? We do.
0: Matthew. Oh, that's cool. Guess what? What? So we have a Patreon uh subscribing to our patreon uh helps us out quite a bit it keeps us building these or being able to make these episodes and you get a little something in return so our our first tier is called the front row seats tier it's five bucks a month uh but this tier includes uh, a two-day early access to all episodes a shout out on future episodes as a loyal producer uh bonus mini episodes called judo chops which are a lot of fun for us to record and uh like 10 to 15 minutes tops Fun to hopefully, you know, a little bite-sized piece for you to listen to. Uh, and occasionally, you'll get some bonus content, such as unedited interviews, behind-the-scenes videos, and uh, tiny little tidbits that you cut out of episodes, uh, mostly because we screwed something up. Yep, all the time. The next tier up from that is the Backstage Pass. It is $20 a month, a little bit of a step up there. But it includes everything that you got in the $5 tier, as well as a very special personalized gift, uh, which I think on our Instagram, you can go check out. Uh, 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 A couple of people that have gotten those already. Mm -hmm. Uh, And also, you get the chance to co-host an episode of Audio Judo about an album of your choice. Uh, This benefit activates after one year of paying at the $20 backstage pass level, and you can only activate it once. But we will do literally any album that you pick. Right. So if there's an album you absolutely love and you want us to hear about it, we will do that. Songs with Elmo. We will do that if we have to. If we have to. If it is your favorite album, we will do it.
2: We will do it. If you want to get a hold of us, try us on Twitter mm-hmm. at Audio Judo or Facebook at Audio Judo or Instagram at Audio underscore Judo.
0: Facebook is actually uh, facebook.com forward slash
2: audio judo. Sorry. That's okay. If you want to send us an email, try info at audio judo.com. That's the best way to do it. We have so many awesome things on the way that I'm not even going to list them at this time because there's too good, many. That's a good point. It's just too fantastic. So keep tuning in and don't forget to go listen to Audio Judo Does Jazz as well. Please. And we will talk to you again in two weeks.
0: Take care, everybody. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.